we basically showed to Tony Blair that if he were to have a program to treat anxiety disorders and depression by psychological therapy, it would pay for itself in terms of uh, savings on benefits and lost taxes. on, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelter, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Richard Laird, formerly known as the Right Honorable Lord Laird, who is the founding director of the Center for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his work on the economics of higher education, unemployment, and mental health and life satisfaction. He has been a member of the House of Lords since 2000. Richard, welcome to The Work Goes On. Hi, delighted to uh, be with you. I'm so glad we could have you come. Uh, let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Oxford because uh, uh, we were moving out of London to avoid the Blitz. And uh, it was a, a, a fortunate move, I suppose, because I went to a prep school uh, in Oxford, which was preparing people for the scholarship for Eton College. Um, so I won a scholarship there. Um, I studied uh, an awful lot of classics, but also, fortunately, history. Uh, I went on to study history at Cambridge, and I went on from that to teach history in, in a state comprehensive school. Um, but uh, I was going to the LSE in the evening just to broaden my education. And the result of that was that I was invited to be the research officer for a major government committee on the future of higher education, chaired by Lord Robbins. And uh, I had a great experience there with one of your former colleagues. Um, Bill Bowen had been, he was young in those days, and he'd been uh, on leave at LSE. And he came and gave us a talk on how you should think about uh, public investment in terms of cost-benefit analysis. And I thought this was absolutely amazing. Uh, so... Um, partly for that reason, uh, when I was invited to go to the LSE as a researcher, uh, I, I, I said yes. But of course, I then had to uh, turn myself into uh, into some kind of, uh, of an economist by uh, taking uh, courses and acquiring uh, my master's. Uh, I never got a PhD. I was told that wasn't necessary. <laughs> that, I guess that's the old days, that's for sure. It is. Uh, you're, you're very well known for many things. And of course, the Robbins Commission had a, a big influence on higher education in, in the UK. Do you, as you, can you describe that influence with just a few words? Well, I can in a way, because it, it, what was interesting was that the, the second day I got there, onto my desk uh, came a memo from the uh, Treasury, the government uh, Treasury Department, saying that uh, we now had 4% of the population going to university, and did we really need uh, more than 2%? Mm -hmm. 
Um, <laughs> and and in, indeed, shouldn't the money be better spent on renovating the decaying cities of the north of England? Um, so that was what we were up against. Um, there was also the so-called pool of ability argument. There was a limited number of people who could benefit, even um, if the jobs were there. So uh, I, I, I think I did contribute a bit in demolishing the pool of ability argument, which, uh, as we've seen uh, uh, in the decades that have followed, was completely uh, illegitimate. Um, so the, the committee recommended uh, a quite sharp expansion, and uh, and that's what happened in the years that followed. It did. I, I know. I guess people have different uh, ways to describe the, uh, the so-called provincial colleges and universities, but many of them turned out to be very good. I visited one myself, University of Bristol, um, and had a had a very good visit there. I, I would like to turn to the second area that you've done so much work in, in the past with Richard Jackman, Jackman and Steve Nichol, and that's uh, inflation and unemployment. Uh, we seem to have a period again, after a very, very long, quiet period, where there was very little inflation, uh, we seem to have a new period where there's both inflation and relatively low unemployment. Do, do you think that work that you did then is relevant today? I think it's the right model. Um, I mean, when we were setting up the center that you, you mentioned, um, unemployment was going up uh, quite rapidly, uh, especially in European countries. Um, and all kinds of implausible explanations were being offered, which we, when you check them out, there was something uh, wrong in that explanation. So we thought, let's find a simple model where we can put in all the factors that would be affecting the relation between unemployment and inflationary pressure. And basically, we just had a two-equation model, uh, one for prices, uh, the markup on wages, and the other wages and markup on, on prices. And unemployment entered into the wage equation and uh, therefore, what was in the wage equation was very important in determining the level of unemployment which would reconcile the markup of prices over wages and wages over prices. Um, and that, that was what we did. We put into the wage equation really all the relevant factors. So we particularly put in the system of bargaining, which at that time was particularly relevant in Europe, uh, union coverage, uh, union uh, centralization of bargaining. Uh, then we have, of course, the product market competitiveness, which helps to reduce wage pressure. And then we had all the shocks, like we're getting now, in terms of trade shocks. These are short-run things, but terms of trade shocks, tax wedge shocks, uh, sh shocks to productivity growth. And then, and this was perhaps the biggest thing we did, was the uh, importance of how unemployed people are treated in affecting wage pressure. Uh, so you've got the replacement ratio, you've got the, the, the period for which benefits continue to be paid, you've got the conditions attaching to the payment of benefit, then you've got what you might call active labour market policies, things that uh, the government is doing to help uh, unemployed people uh, to get work. Uh, and all of these things when they were put into the wage equation, provided quite a good explanation of the, the, both the level of unemployment in different countries and the movement of unemployment uh, over time in its relation to inflationary pressure. Um, 
But there was one other thing which we were particularly pleased about because you could think of these variables affecting how unemployed people are treated as determining how effective unemployed people are as, as fillers of vacant jobs. But of course, you can get a direct measure of that if you use the third equation, which is a hiring equation, where you're thinking of hiring depending on unemployment and vacancies. And if you see that equation moving around, that shows there's some change in the effectiveness of the unemployment, uh, unemployed people at filling these vacancies. And you've got these extraordinary pictures that we, we used a lot. In fact, I remember showing them to Bob Solo. He was really interested and encouraging uh, about it. You can see this, this uh, relationship simply moving out um, in almost all European countries uh, from the 70s uh, and, and into the 80s. And we basically said the, the problem for governments is how to bring that curve back, um, which means dealing with some of these things uh, to do with how unemployed people are treated. And in particular, we found that uh, that effectiveness uh, measure was hugely affected by how long people had been unemployed. If a lot of people had been unemployed for a long time, the unemployed had become rather ineffective at filling vacancies. And you could also find this from the micro data. So we, 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 having, having written our book, <laughs> uh, we, we uh, started advocating policy change. Uh, and we certainly had some impact in, in, in Britain. We had the so-called New Deal from Tony Blair, which uh, was an active labour market policy to, to try and get all young people, at least, into work uh, in less than a year. Um, we were always hoping that would be extended properly to adult people, but it only was to a degree. Then we, we saw the same sort of similar changes in Norway, uh, Denmark, but, uh, but in Germany in particular, uh, we were really uh, excited by the Hart's reforms, which uh, greatly increased the conditionality uh, of benefit and um, probably are the main explanation of why German unemployment has been so much lower in the last 20 years than in the 20 years before that. Uh, and I, I, I have been told, <laughs> I can't check this, uh, that our work was really influential um, behind that, that policy. So thinking of the relevance of this today, I mean, you've got these terrific terms of trade shocks affecting European countries at the moment. And I think we are going to see, we, we, we haven't yet got unemployment uh, uh, high, high in, while inflation is still high, but we are probably going to have uh, a, a lot more unemployment. And it's a very interesting question as to how much that unemployment will uh, bring down the inflation. And I think this is a big unknown. Very interesting. I know you, actually, I remember, I think I remember correctly, that that you and Steve Nichol, maybe Richard Jackman too, organized a kind of a march across England for the unemployed. We, we did, um, <laughs> in support of, of these active labor market support for unemployed people. Uh, yeah, you're right. It was, it was a hand to, across across Britain, <laughs> although actually it only went from London to Liverpool. Um, I remember Larry Summers and his whole family turned up 
uh, at the London end uh, <laughs> to be in London. Um, yeah, that was that was a that was a, a, a great moment, and I think um, this did have an effect. Uh, this was in in, uh, in 1987. That did have an effect even on the Conservative government. They started paying more attention to how uh, they were both using conditions on the unemployed, but also providing support for the unemployed. Well, and I, 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 I do, I have a couple more questions, but I do want to turn to the work that you've done on life satisfaction and mental health, which I think has Good. been a probably <laughs> one of the, a, a major preoccupation of yours in the last 20 years, um, including uh, the book, of course, that uh, on, on, uh, on satisfaction. Um, and I gather you, you don't seem to like the word happiness. Happiness, that's fine too. <laughs> happiness, satisfaction, yeah, they all sound good to me. Um, no, you're, 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 I'm, I was actually rather pleased when you used the word satisfaction because uh, many people have told me that um, they can take this work seriously if you call it well-being and they can't take it seriously if you call it happiness. So, yeah, <laughs> there you go. So satisfaction is an intermediate good, I guess. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I know that you have been very active in sort of policy aspects associated with these issues, especially in the mental health area. Um, and I don't think that's very well known to very many of the labor economists out there, probably more known to those who are in the medical community. What well, can you tell us about that? Well, um, I mean, I suppose the first point is that if you're thinking about satisfaction as the, the, the measure of the success of a society, um, which is the measure we use, for example, in the World Happiness Report based on the Gallup World Poll, you, you need to have a clear picture of, of what are the main factors affecting it. And, <clears throat> of course, income is an important factor. And uh, we were able to tie down, actually, the functional form of that quite well so that uh, you see that satisfaction is a linear function of, of log income, which is what you might expect um, from ordinary psychophysics, if you like. But um, the, the, the main point of this whole science um, is that uh, whether people are satisfied with their lives depends on so much else besides income. Um, so it depends on, on obviously, uh, physical health, but even uh, more uh, in terms of the explained variants uh, of satisfaction within the country. Uh, the biggest single factor is simply whether you've ever been diagnosed with uh, anxiety disorder or depression. That's a single single most powerful explanatory variable. Uh, physical health is also powerful. Um, then comes work, particularly the quality of work, uh, which varies enormously and is really important to people. Um, and, 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 and only then comes uh, income. So uh, I felt, having written the book you mentioned, that I should um, try and uh, do what I could <laughs> about the, the most important thing causing misery, which, which was mental illness. Uh, uh, in particular, because, of course, mental illness is a huge factor in the labour market in causing um, people to be out of the labour force in the first place, or if they have a job to be absent, or if they uh, are even present, <laughs> not to have their minds on the job. So it, it, it was quite easy to make the case, um, even to somebody who didn't think that 
well-being was that important. This is a, a rather good way of saving public money. Uh, and it, it now turns out there's another very interesting thing that's become more and more clear, uh, that treating people uh, with mental health problems who have comorbid physical health problems, which is uh, about a third of them, saves a huge amount of money on the treatment of the physical problem. So we basically showed to Tony Blair that if he were to have a program to treat anxiety disorders and depression by psychological therapy, um, it would pay for itself in terms of uh, savings on benefits and lost taxes, and then pay for itself to a large extent a second time in terms of saving on physical healthcare costs, which is also, of course, important in an administrative sense because it's the same people who are paying for psychological therapy and for physical healthcare. So we, we set up this program, and we is really David Clark, who is a wonderful clinical psychologist, one of the world's leading ones, set up this program which involved training about 1,500 new people each year in evidence-based psychological therapy, placing them in newly created services where they can be properly supervised and then continue to be employed, and also to measure the outcomes by measuring... Uh, having a person complete a questionnaire before every session. So we actually know for everybody, this has never been done in psychology before, you know for everybody, even if they drop out, how uh, they had, what, where they'd got to uh, before they dropped out. And we have a, an improvement rate of 75%, uh, a, what we call a, a recovery rate, that's crossing a frontier um, of uh, over 50%. Um, and we actually maintained it uh, during the lockdowns uh, online, which is re was really surprising. Uh, we maintained the volume and the success rate. So that's been a, a, a very satisfying uh, outcome of all this work. But, but, I mean, I want to get satisfaction or well-being, whatever word you like, to be the criterion uh, for all public policy, not just in that area. Uh, and it, it bothers me when I hear the phrase health and well-being as if well-being isn't an overarching good that is the justification for everything from income, environment, law and order, everything else. As Jeremy Bentham said, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing the, uh, the, the Jeremy Bentham agenda. So, so first thing was to get all governments, which we have got most OECD governments now, to measure the well-being of their people. But then, of course, uh, to address... Uh, that their policies to improving it, and, and that requires a really massive information base. Uh, we we made a first shot at this in a book which we 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 called I hope you like the title The Origins of Happiness. Guess where that came from? Um, <laughs> and and, and um, you know the aim is to provide policymakers with thousands or even tens of thousands of coefficients that they can use to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of policies in terms of well-being changes achieved per dollar. And uh, we're, we're, moving, we're moving forward on, on that. There's uh, a lot more interest. Um, the, the OECD and the EU have said that their members should be uh, making people and their well-being the centrepiece of policy design, which is a step forward. Um, the British Treasury uh, have, have authorised the use of direct measures of well-being 
um, in the analysis of policy. So, I mean, what we're looking for uh, now is politicians who will really, really go for this. And uh, you can imagine um, which party is more likely to do this uh, in Britain than <laughs> which other one. <laughs> but we're, we're, all, we're also, all, if I may say so, we're also realising that unless the public is carried along with this idea, this is not going to happen. So, so two other things that I've been involved in are a, a, a sort of grassroots movement of people um, who are trying to create a happier world called Action for Happiness and a top-down movement, uh, which we're just launching this year, um, called the World Wellbeing Movement, which is, which is targeting, directly targeting policymakers and, and business leaders. Um, but, I mean, what I'd most like of all, of course, would be for economists <laughs> to take these direct measures of well-being seriously. I had a lovely debate, actually, at the AEA meetings in, uh, I think it was 2018, um, with Joe Sleeglitz and, 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 uh, uh, and, and Alan Kruger and Bill Nordhaus. And, and I do think that, you know, we do use... Uh, answers to questions. We measure unemployment by answers to questions. We shouldn't. We shouldn't shy away from measuring utility by answers to questions. Um, I, there, we're coming to the end here, and that's been. A, that's a, obviously you're very, very involved in that discussion, and it's very interesting to hear what your involvement has been. I am curious about one more uh, housekeeping issue. You've been a member of the House of Lords for a while. There are quite a few economists in the House of Lords. Uh, I don't know how many. Uh, I know several. Uh, I'm curious, do you do you act together when it's time to think about economic issues? I realize that some are Tory lords and some are labor lords and some are crossbenchers. But is there a sense in which the economists get together in the House of Lords? Well, there's an Economic Affairs Committee, which is, I think, the most prestigious of, of all the committees. And at the moment, it's got four um, uh, LSE economists on it, <laughs> or former <laughs> LSE economists on it, and, and one other uh, non-LSE economist out of 12 members. So, um, yeah, that, that, that works quite well. You'll also be pleased, Orly, uh, that the uh, current uh, term... Um, terms of reference are to investigate the the shrinkage in labour force participation uh, in <laughs> in Britain, which is apparently rather unique uh, compared with every other country coming out of COVID. <laughs> so, uh, labour economics is to the fore. It is. I think you're absolutely right. It's been a, been a um... Uh, it's probably back more than it ever has been for all those reasons. Well, Richard, that's been a pleasure to talk to you. Our guest today has been Lord Richard Layard, the founding director of the Center for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University, when we will speak with Claudia Golden, the Henry Lee Professor of Economics at Harvard University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.